The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's so good to be with you today, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, it is the height of spring, just back from a trip to California and Georgia. If we got to hang out at the Rethink Leadership Conference or at the Thrive Conference in Sacramento, so glad we had a chance to connect. And we're doing some special events around the country this year. So stay tuned for that. Hey, today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Team Leadership. If you are sick and tired of dreadful meetings, bit of toxic culture under the service, and losing your best leaders, visit theartofleadership.com. That's my course. Discover how you can get access to my training program for a limited time for just $17 to start. $17. Check it out. Art of Team Leadership. And by Glue. Glue's got a revolutionary free texting service that will change the way your church communicates. Go to get.glue.us slash texting. That's get.glue.us slash texting to learn more. Well, J.D. Greer is here today. He's back in the house. I had him on with Todd Wilson before, but this time it's just J.D. and I We're going to talk about all of the drama in the Southern Baptist denomination over the last few years and talk about leading Southern Baptists. We are also going to talk about how multiplication leads to explosive church growth. And we get into the the hard part of it, too, in this conversation. And then we talk about the future of denominations. I think you're really going to love this. And hey, also coming up, I've got an episode with Warren Bird and JJ Vasquez, and we are going to talk about multiplication and the future of church planting. So if you're a church planter or you're thinking of reorienting your church or launching a campus, we got you covered. J.D. Greer is the pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and served as the 62nd president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's also the author of several books and speaks at conferences and events around the world. Under Pastor J.D.'s leadership, the summit has grown from a plateaued church of 300 to one of over 12,000. And when you hear the multiplication story, you'll be blown away. He has a bold vision to plant 1,000 new churches by the year 2050. And surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, they're ahead of schedule. So we're going to break that down for you. I think you're really going to love this episode. If you're new to the podcast, hey, welcome. We're glad you're here. For returning listeners, man, thank you. I know a lot of you have listened since episode one. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Uh, We would love you to do that. And if you enjoy the show, leave a rating and review wherever you listen. Well, a few weeks ago, I wrote a blog post on burnout in the church, and the stats are pretty challenging. Did you know 40% of pastors now show a high risk of burnout? That's an almost 400% increase in the last eight years. The number used to be about 11%. And only 22% of pastors say they have any kind of regular support. That means 80% of pastors say, I got no one to help me. We're near a tipping point on this one, and it's really close to my heart, and I would love for you to stop doing ministry alone. You're in the unique position to get a team around you, but you know what a lot of people struggle with? It's like, well, I don't know how to really build a team. My staff is okay, but they're not great, and we're just talking honest here. And sometimes the volunteers, they're just busy. Well, If you've ever struggled with any of that, you've got to check out my training program, The Art of Team Leadership. I will walk you through a step-by-step process for finding and developing better leaders. Believe it or not, you've got them. You've just got to develop them, and it's not that hard. And also to create a thriving team culture because a great culture attracts great leaders. So if you're ready to end dreadful meetings with that person, toxic people ruining your culture and losing your best leaders, then it's time for you to check out 
The Art of Team Leadership. Go to theartofteamleadership.com and from today until May 17th, you can try it out for 30 days for just $17. You get the full 30 days to decide whether it's a fit for you, but that offer is only good until May 17th. And podcast listeners, I'd love for you to check it out at theartofteamleadership.com. Act now and you'll get that special introductory rate for the first month, uh, just $17 to check it out for 30 days, theartofteamleadership.com. And you know that engagement is crucial for guiding people on faith journeys, but unfortunately, in today's world, it can be a fight to stand out from that noise. Like, how do you stand out online? If you ever sent an important email that nobody read or spent time scratching your head about how to use TikTok, you know exactly what I mean. That's where Glue's free texting service comes in. Do you know texting has a 98% open rate? Response time, average of 90 seconds. Plus, you text every day, so you're already a pro. Now, email, about 20% for a lot of organizations, and it's no wonder that thousands of churches are making texting a part of their communication strategy, and Glue's texting service is free. Glue knows how important it is for churches to have access to texting. That's why they're working with kingdom-minded donors to give it to you for free. It takes less than five minutes to set up and send your first text. No credit card required ever. Don't miss out. Go to get.glue.us slash texting and you can sign up today. That's get.glue.us slash texting and sign up today. And now my conversation with J.D. Greer. J.D., welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Carrie, for having me. Love your love your stuff. Well, thank you. And I appreciate what you're doing. And I want to start with change. So you've been leading Summit Church for just over 20 years now, which is incredible. That's uh, that's good longevity these days in church world, JD, I would say, right? When you read all the polls. Uh, what, do you right. what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing church leaders today? Well, I mean, being very familiar with the podcast, Carrie, I think you have a lot of guests on here that that kind of trumpet some of the same themes, and I would agree yeah, with um, go ahead most of what I hear on here. I mean, we also obviously have a rapidly secularizing culture, so that the assumptions that you make—I mean, literally just five, six, seven years ago—are fundamentally different. Um, you know, I've I found that when it comes to certain parts of the Christian message, the 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 more difficult, challenging things, it used to be kind of a like don't ask, don't tell type of approach. Like okay. I won't bring it up if you don't bring it up. And now it's just because there's so much of a narrative that has been given, whether it's by the media or by entertainment, I actually realized that with most people who are unchurched, I'm starting not on neutral ground. I'm starting at, at quite the deficit. And I've got to say, hey, look, you've heard that these are the options. You've heard this is what we believe. This is actually what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to speak with grace and truth. Um, and so I, I think that's you know, being aware of of those dynamics and the assumptions that people in our community make when they step foot inside a church. I think that's a that's a change that it has occurred just in. I, mean, I don't consider myself that old in ministry, but that's been a change that's occurred over my you know twenty years or so that's been there. Well, what's interesting, um, I, I, yeah, you're, I want to go back to some of the other ones, but you're in the South. I mean, you're in the Bible Belt, yeah. like you're you're there. So where, how is it showing up? Is it showing up demographically? Is it showing up in younger generations, all generations? Like where where are you detecting it? Yeah, I, good, 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 good question. Just to be clear, I, I'm actually, we're in, we're in Raleigh, Durham, which is where UNC, Chapel Hill, yeah. Duke University, a lot of, um, and so we all, we kind of think of ourselves as like a, a little, the hole in the Bible belt, you know, where the buckle goes. <laughs> so, uh, so, because, yeah. so. 
I get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, just a, a one, you know, it's like 80 some percent of our our community votes Democratic. And that's just not typical for a lot of your kind of South, you know, so we're in a very blue area. Um, but, you know, having said that, you've got, um, you, it definitely is that younger generation that assumes that. But, but really even just, um, I'd say all generations, there's sort of a cultural zeitgeist at the moment. And uh. there's some assumptions, uh, you know, we used to have the, that, you know, well, Christians may be a little strict on some things, but they're good people. They're loving people. They're honest people. Um, I, I just don't, my perception is I don't enter conversations with that benefit anymore. I enter wow. as, as somebody that is like almost outside of the, you know, the Overton window, uh-huh. uh, you know, where the, the, the set of things that you're allowed to disagree about that they automatically put us outside of that window. And, um, it's, and we've got to, we've got to do, you know, we've got to overcome that with whether it's, grace or, you know, giving reasonable explanations. Um, and I, I just think being aware of that's very helpful. And otherwise, if you're naive about it, it ends up, you know, you're just making it worse. So you see that. What else are you seeing in, in terms of change? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we, you know, we um, just the, the rapid, uh, the rapid decline in things like attention span and, um, you know, how people intake information. Um, I think sometimes we as believers probably, you know, too quickly try to adapt and, and, but, you know, I, I definitely see that the, um, just the, the, the focus on, uh, how everything as it's gone digital and online, um, that is presented some real challenges to doing the, the one another parts of the body of Christ and to, uh, to really be a, you know, to be a church. And, um, it, we, we've struggled to try to adapt to that change and also remain faithful to what it means to be a, you know, a, a genuine local church. Where's that showing up for you? The shorter attention span? Um, well, not so much in where you think like just the, the sermons. I mean, that's obviously yeah. something, I mean, we find that, you know, people actually, end up having a, a decent appetite for that. But um, just finding how willing people are to skip engagement in, you know, the body of Christ. Yeah, mm. they just, you yeah. know, the COVID, we tried to be on the front, the cutting edge of, you know, changing our online strategy. And um, I, I think those advances are, are really, really helpful. I think that that season, the lockdown forced us to get 10 years ahead. And, you know, overall, that was a, a positive development, but, um, there was just a, you know, there was a lot of people that instead of, you know, coming two to three times a month, they would come one to two times a month. And sometimes they just go long stretches. And I, I'm not, you know, somebody who thinks that you can't, you know, carry out the body of Christ and, and be a part of, you know, some of these online experiences. But I also know that there definitely is an in-personness to, these relationships. And it's, I, I often will say to our church, like, look, you know, um, when my wife and I are apart and, um, you know, I'm traveling, I'll FaceTime her and we have a great time. I'm so thankful for that. But if I'm FaceTime her and she's in the next room at home every night, then that means that there might be a challenge to our relationship. And so I, you, it, we see people really just, it, everything has become, I sit at home on my couch and we're seeing this just kind of rapid isolate, uh, isolation of, 
of you know, atomization, I think is the word I've heard a lot, you mm-hmm. know, of just of, of people. And it's showing up not just in, in, in spiritual and religious context. It shows up in how people are, you know, um, engaging with the opposite sex and how they, you know, form friendships. It's just every metric is, is kind of down. And I think that certainly affected the church too. Right. Um, I'm curious about you as a leader, because one of the things I was tracking even as recently as today is I've found, and it could be I've, I've, I've come off like a month long of having a cold or whatever, but I've seen this trend generally. Um, my own attention span is not what it used to be. I'm reading a book for the purposes of endorsing it. And I'm like, okay, I think I got like 20 pages in me right now. And that's about it. And <laughs> I don't know, there's there's an atomization, I like that term, of my own attention span. Have you noticed anything internal like that? Or you're just like hyper-disciplined and you haven't noticed a, a change? <laughs> well, now that you phrase it that way, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm thinking, man, have I gotten like that? I mean, some of it, you know, honestly, I'm turning 50 next year. So mm-hmm. there's all these changes that are happening in every part of my, uh, you know, energy uh-huh. and and so yeah, I, don't, I need to, I need to reflect on that, Carrie. I need to say, yeah. is that because I'm getting older? Is that because the media is changing my attention span? But, um, I mean, I still enjoy you know, reading and, and that type of stuff for me. It's always been like a muscle that the moment I stop using it, I could quickly get out of shape Yeah, and I'll get back into it. And, um, if I've, I've gone through a couple of seasons where I didn't read as much as I would like to, and then getting back into it, it's like, all right, a 20 minute spot and I'm enough. And then it, it gradually gets longer. Fair enough. Well, your church has really focused on reaching the next gen. We touched on it briefly, but what are some trends you're seeing among the next generation or even innovations that you are working on to better connect with younger millennials and Gen Z? Yeah, it's interesting because I've never really thought of our church as that innovative, mm-hmm. um, meaning, I don't know, just... Um, that's that's been a tool that we've tried to use uh, to access people, but it's never been what we really led with. Um, I, when I look in and I see, because th- there are certain things I'll I'll kind of in retrospect see like, hey, that was actually a a really good adaptation for for reaching people. They were really done, you know, with that kind of as a second thought. I I think of that what C.S. Lewis said that you know he never really tried to be original. He just tried to state the old doctrines as plainly as possible for, you know, British people in the mm-hmm. 1950s. And somehow that came off as really novel. And so, right. you know, when I think about how we've reached uh, this next generation, I, I, I'm like, well, I just feel like we tried to make it as plain as, as possible to them. And, and that made us stumble into innovations. <laughs> I, uh, um, this, I mean this to be as ridiculous as it sounds, but um, I thought we kind of invented multi-site. which is not at all true. I mean, not even by a decade. I just was, I wasn't aware, but, but I thought, oh, we could do this. We could put this here and we could there. And then come to find out as I start, you know, investigating it, like a lot of people have been doing this for a long time and they've been really effective at it. But it's just an example of how like, okay, could we, is it easier rather than building one big gargantuan, you know, six flags over Jesus kind of building and having people drive 40 minutes to it? How can we tell people to stay where they are you know, serve where they live and be the church in that community. Um, You know, we are very, uh, I mean, we're, we're, I I like to think of us as a very plain church. We have, you know, worship prayer and, and somebody stands up, opens the Bible and just, and just tries to um, say, this is what it means. And this is, you know, how it changes your life. I find that for, especially for college students, there, um, there is a, a high desire to see like, what does, you know, 
<laughs> the way I say it is, I just got to give them the whole ball of crazy up front. Uh, I'm not trying to show there's three things that make your life better. It's just, you know, this is what I, I want to teach through the, the the scope of scripture and show how there's a completely different approach to life and reality and a completely different story that's being told. And so, I, I, again, I don't feel like that's that's that innovative. It's just, you know, kind of what it is. And and it's connected with a lot of, I think, very hungry young professionals and students here. And and by God's grace, they, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of people profess faith in Christ. Well, I think if there's one thing I've seen emerging as a trend with Gen Z in particular, it's stripped down, it's hope over hype, it's uh, simple, clear, direct, mm. personal, that seems to be resonating. Now, last time you were on, you shared a vision to plant a thousand churches by 2050. So you got a few decades left. You wrote about, I think, 300 or so. And then we had a global pandemic shutdown. All the craziness sort of intervened since then. Mm. Um, what's changed in that vision, if anything? And how is that progressing or advancing at this point, J.D.? Yeah, I appreciate you remember that. Um, we're, we're on number 511, uh, wow. so it's progressing. Um, I, you know, when I first um, when I first got here, in fact, I was just talking to one of our um, our campus pastors who's been here for about a decade, and he said when I first came in and heard that thousand churches vision, he, he said I thought that was huge and insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, but now it just feels like if anything because of the power of multiplication and because of just how the church grows, he says, it's pretty clear that's going to be too small of a goal. He, he's actually leaving uh, as one of our campus pastors to go and plant. He's taken uh, a couple dozen of our people to go plant a church over in, in, um, in a, a part of Southeast Asia and one of these, the, the big cities over there. And he said, it's just, it's just, you know, as we've seen kind of that slow process of multiplication where churches plant churches, and um, you know, when every church is planted with the the view of multiplication in mind, it um, it happens quicker than you think it will. Uh, huh. You know, and that's um, I, I read this book um, recently, or it's it's an, actually an older book, but um, it's by Rodney Stark, the church historian. He actually yeah. passed away a few years ago. He was at Baylor, but um, in one of his books, I think it was the rise of Christianity. He says that you know he said from our best estimates, the total number of Christians that were um, you know, in the world and at the end of the first century, 99 AD, he said it's about 7,500, wow. um, which I don't know, you know, you think like, okay, let's, let's give him a thousand on either side for him to be off. That's not that many. After all the apostles are dead and passed on, there's less Christians total in the world than there are, you know, at, at, you know, uh, less than at many of the churches, you know, that gather every Sunday, just right yeah, here in our own city. A, like less than a hockey arena, let alone a football stadium. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you think that, I mean, by the time you get to the end of the first century or end of the second century, Tertullian describes the church as geographically broad, but still numerically insignificant. And then by the time you get to what, 312 AD, those historians, Roman historians are saying there's so many Christians, it's like, you know, more than 50% of the Roman empire, we're talking millions and millions and millions. And, and, and Rodney Stark says, how did that happen? He said, where you go from, you know, 7,500 Christians in 99 AD to where more than half the Roman Empire is that way in 312 AD. And he gives several factors that were at play. But the one that really stood out to me is he said, it really is just the mathematical principles of multiplication. Huh. And it takes a little bit of time for them to kick in, but then you really just see it multiply. And I, I think of that based on our, well, you know, our context here, because in the last, you know, 100 years or so, Carrie, we've had bigger churches 
in America than the apostles would ever have dreamed of. Yeah. You know, Billy Graham has preached to larger audiences and, 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 and I'm all for that. I'm not a mega church hater, obviously. And uh, I love, you know, large evangelistic events, but during that time that we've seen bigger audiences and the apostles ever dreamed of, we've seen the percentage of Americans in church every weekend. We've seen that number go down, not up. And so when we think about it from that perspective, you're like, okay, again, I'm not anti-mega church, but is it possible that all this stuff that we're thinking will grow the church is not actually what grows the church and what grows it or what they were doing in those first, second, and third centuries? And Rodney Stark, uh, you know, he basically says it this way. He says what they had that we did, that we don't have anymore is this awareness that every Christian was called to multiply and every church was called to plant other churches. And he said that did more than all of the other, all the other things, you know, that we, that we have today that they, that they didn't have. And that's, that's what I think explains what's happened with us with that vision of a thousand churches is it's just, we're, we're seeing these powers of multiplication. I think we'll cross a thousand within five years. And then, I mean, maybe that number needs to be 10,000 um, by the time by 2050. Yeah. Yeah. So let's break that down a little bit because I think we talked about it. We touched on it briefly the last time you were on with Todd Wilson, but I really want to break it down because I think the instinctive reaction for a lot of pastors, because most churches are struggling or even churches that are thriving right now is uh, I'll give you a couple of scenarios. One pastor says, okay, we're growing, you know, but we're small. And if I give away my best people, I'm going to have nobody left. And then there's another church. Let's say they're close to breaking a thousand and they've clawed back from the pandemic and they're exhausted. And now they got a full room again, but they're like, wait, 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 here's, here's what you don't understand, JD. It took me so many years to get here. I'm just afraid of losing people. And then we got to start over again. If we get rid of our best leaders, where are those other leaders going to come from? I mean, this is something you have been through numerous times with your own locations and was sending people out around the world. Last time we talked, there was someone else you planted and I think they beat you on the outreach list or whatever, the outreach yeah. 100 <laughs> list or something like that. So you've, you've, you've right. dealt with that and you probably had those internal fears, concerns, worries yourself. So what would you say to those church leaders who are like, we can't afford to multiply? Yeah. Well, first of all, I feel that. And just to uh-huh. put all the cards on the table, um, the kind of people that step up and volunteer to go on church plants are never sideline people. You know, they, <laughs> they don't say, hey, I'm, I'm disengaged from the mission here, but I'm ready to go on a church right. plant. It's, I wasn't it's your giving core. much. I wasn't serving, but I'm going to go <laughs> right. lead. But I'm going to be no. radically generous now and move. Right. These are your best uh, people. No transformation by aviation. Um, uh, but, you know, because of that, it's, we've had to say goodbye. I've sometimes will joke that being at our church feels like trying to hug a parade sometimes, you know, cause <laughs> like by the time I get to know somebody, they, they leave. But what we have, um, what we found is that, um, there is, I mean, it really is, a, um, th- 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 there's a, a thing called the heresy of sequentialism. It actually, okay. I first heard it from a guy named David Garrison, who was one of the most prolific church planners over, um, in, um, in Asia. And he said that, um, he said, uh, Americans in particular commit this heresy of sequentialism by treating the Christian life as if you kind of go 101, 201, 301, 401, and then multiplication, sharing Christ. He said, that's all, you know, that's your 401 level. He said, you look at the New Testament and you find that Jesus put the reproduction and the multiplication down at the first level. You know, so it's go home and tell your friends how great things the Lord has done for you. The woman in John 4, you know, she immediately goes out and begins to bring people back. And so, you know, we say that for a church, it's it's like, yes, you don't, you can't afford to wait 
until, you know, you're at 2000 people and you've got, you know, at least what you think now and in in a, at this state, you think, oh, at 2000, we're going to have all this excess money and stuff and we're going to be ready to give it away. And you say, that's, you, you got to build that in from the beginning because it's part of, it, it actually creates healthy discipleship. It creates the right leadership dynamics. And so we just, you know, from the beginning just said, look, we're, we're going to, we're going to give away more than we think we can. What's ironic, Kerry, is we as pastors, uh, for pastors that are listening, we all know, we all know how to teach this to our people regarding Uh money. (laughs) No pastor ever says, right? Like, Hey, if you got excess money sitting around Mm. in your bank account, you should give that away. You You give God your first and your best. And then, and then what you find, and this is true is he really does multiply. He multiplies your provisions back to you. Um, why would we say that with our money and not do that with our, our leadership? We give to God the first and the best of our leadership. And I, I'm just telling you, you cannot outgive God. I feel like for every one we send out, there's three more that pop up in their place. And I think there are both natural and supernatural reasons for that. You know, the, um, the, the, the supernatural reasons are God just multiplies it because like he does the five loaves and the two fish, but the, the natural reasons are, um, I mean, several secular leadership people have pointed this out. Um, Liz Wiseman uh, wrote that yeah. book, Multipliers, and she talks about the leaders that attract other leaders are those that demonstrate with their organization that they are committed not to having people as cogs in their machine, but you're committed to their development. And that means when it's time for them to step outside of your organization and go, that they see you blessing them and sending them. And that creates this magnet for other leaders who want to be in that kind of environment. She uses Jack Welch as a as an example because I think in his heyday uh, at GE that you could look out across the Fortune 500 companies and there was this absurd number of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who had come off of Jack Welch's staff. Right. And she says, you know, now you might be tempted to look at that and say, oh, well, he couldn't keep good talent. But she said, it's actually the opposite. It's that because he was committed to when it was time sending those men and women out, it created this desire of people. You, you fought to get on Jack Welch's staff because you knew that you were going to be developed and, and that includes sending out. And so that's what I would say to that pastor of the small church or the church of a thousand. Like, yeah, I understand you feel like you can't afford to give it away, but it, you know, in a kingdom sense, you can't afford not to. So is this something you have to tell yourself again and again to remind yourself? Or is this like, do you have to have an internal narrative every time it's time to start a new location, send someone off, uh, plant church number 512 or whatever number you're at right now? Like, is this, do you, do you win this battle or is it a constant tension? I think is my question, it, JD. It's literally happening right now, Carrie, as we're having wow. this conversation. Okay. I, I'm, I'm self-reminding. Uh-huh. Um, earlier today when I sat um, with this campus pastor, we were it was a, a larger meeting of all of our campus pastors. And and I'm hearing this guy talk talk to me about who he's got on his team. I, I felt it again. I'm like, <laughs> oh, not that person. And I mean, he's taken, you know, it's like big givers and really talented people. And I just have to say, okay, uh, this is not my church. And the worst possible thing that I can do for this church or even for my own soul is to close my selfish, cold hands around the, you know, around this and, and say, this is mine. Um, and everything in my flesh, carry everything, um, you know, just wants to hold on. Cause I get into, I mean, I got into ministry for mostly godly reasons, but you know, it's, I, I think you and I've talked about this before. Ministry ends up being a great place for people with the idol of success to hide because uh-huh. you cloak everything that you are doing 
as doing it for Jesus when it's actually, you know, for you. And I, I fight that. That is the death to my flesh is I feel like you, I never, I never graduated from that. And I don't suppose I ever will. That was actually later down in my question. So I want to lift that up. It is ministry is a great place for guys with the idol of success to hide because you can cloak all your ambition in spiritual language. It's like, oh, I did this all for God when really it's been a lot about me. Um, I'm turning 58 this week and Mm. I think about motives more than any time I ever have in my life. And uh, I don't think I score well in that, to be honest with you. Like, I don't, Mm. I don't know um, that I'm succeeding in that area. I want to talk about why, because and that's another thing that I'm very sensitive to these days is just people using spiritual language around selfish ambition just really gets my radar going. Um, talk about how you came up to that insight. Like how did you stumble on that? And then how does that play out that this becomes a great place to hide in the mm. church for selfish ambition. I think it was St. Augustine who said that um, emotions like anxiety and fear and worry and jealousy, that they're like smoke that are coming from a fire. And when you see the smoke, you should trace the trail of smoke back to the fire. The worst thing to do is just wave the smoke away because he said these fires are idols that you're worshiping at and these emotions are the sign. So for me, um, it was fairly early on in my ministry, four or five years into it. I just really, um, I mean, I just dealt with some pretty severe jealousy of other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Not, nothing that got to the point that I was like, you know, like vandalizing their churches, but just, you know, <laughs> but it was me. like, why, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, why, why wasn't I invited to speak at that conference? You uh-huh. know, why did they get that? Why does, and you know, I even, and this, it's hard to even verbalize this, admit it, but um, you, you delight in somebody's failure, you know, where yeah. you, you hear yeah. something that happens. And, and I remember just having this one day where it was like this, like, what is wrong with your heart? Because now this guy has destroyed his family, you know, because of uh, failure. He's hurt all these people's faith. And your first emotion was kind of a, all right, you know, now. Now I don't have to worry about that guy, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, and, and it just, it feels like, I mean, I imagine some of your listeners are like, I'm not sure this guy should be in ministry, but, but I mean, I'm just telling you that was what was in my just heart. Being honest, I was like, I've, I've had those thoughts too. Yep. Yeah. Like, why is that? And it came to a head really one afternoon. I'd set aside a day for prayer and fasting and trying to ask God, like, would you send a revival to Raleigh, Durham? I mean, just the kind that would like, you know, the, that they, in a hundred years from now, they'd write about it. And I, I don't have many, a whole lot of times where I feel like, you know, God's not speaking to me every day, you know, writing things in the sky and, you know, speaking to my alphabet soup or whatever. But I, it was one of those moments where God spoke really, really clearly, um, as loud as if it had been audible. And, and, and what the Holy Spirit said was like, is like, all right, what if I say yes to that prayer? And what if I send a revival to the triangle, the Raleigh Durham area, the kind that will change the landscape of the city? But what if your church doesn't get any bigger? And what if I do the church down the road? What if their church gets bigger and their pastor gets famous and you never get a mention in the history books? Do you still want me to do it? Oh. Now, Carrie, I, I, I know the right answer. I know the right, yes, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. I know that's the answer, but that that wouldn't have been the real answer. Is It was like, I'm not okay with that. 
you know, because somehow in this thy kingdom come, right behind that has always been my kingdom come. And, um, you know, I feel like it makes a better story if, you know, on that day I wrote something down and lit a fire and buried it and I've never struggled with it again. But really that just started a process of, you know, repentance, a, a posture I still find myself in today. You know, I think Martin Luther, how he always said the whole of the Christian life is a posture of repentance. And that's, mm-hmm. um, I will still feel, now maybe not to the same degree. I do think there's been some progress in grace, but yeah. um, I still feel some of those things. And I have to say, okay, what is this? Who is this for? And whose name is this about? And, um, and died in my flesh all over again. Um, Paul Tripp told me uh, recently, um, you know, Paul Tripp, he's the Christian yeah. counselor. I was just asking him about these guys, um, men and women, who just have these spectacular failures. And you, you know, you've certainly talked about them here in your podcast. But I just said, you know, what do these guys have in common? What do these men and women have in common? Uh, that and because he's he's known you know, some of them up close. And he said, well, he said, there's two things I see. He said, number one is he said they begin to lack peer community. He said, I don't mean community because they're these people are usually extroverts, so they always have people around them. He said, but I mean the kind of people that are just, they're not impressed with you, they don't work for you, and they will tell you the truth. Yeah. He said, that's number one. He said, number two is, and this compounds the first one, is he says, um, they forget the power of indwelling sin. Mm. He said, they think that, that they've learned enough and been successful enough that they no longer have to fight that battle they used to fight when their earliest days of Christianity, which is just dying to the flesh. And he said, because of that, you add that to the first one, and then it just grows into a, this monster that they don't even know is really there. I mean, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is just like, I'm convinced in my flesh as an apostle, there's nothing good there. And I wrestle with this, and I hate it. And I'm, I'm, I'm in, when God is being gracious to me and when I've got the right friendships in my life, I can still see that, that that same proud kid that was you know, so concerned with who the cheerleaders were looking at when he was out on the basketball court there's a version of that guy that stands up in the pulpit every week. And I have to, you know, just maintain a posture of repentance and say, Lord, you know, I need this to be about your glory and not mine. Help me to, to actually, to actually believe that with my heart. I really appreciate you talking about that. And I think, you know, when, when I look at you planting ahead of schedule, you've got this big vision, right? That by 2050, you're going to have a thousand churches. You're ahead of it and you keep releasing. Um, I think that's a great mark of leadership because the other thing would be is to let the voices, the fears, the insecurities win and say, well, we're going to slow down a little bit. Like we've got 30, you know, 27 years. <laughs> we can, whoa, slow down a little bit. You know, we'll do most of them in the 2040s. In the meantime, I'm going to hang on to my top donors. I'm going to hang on to it. Does it create um, that dynamic? Do you ever get people, you know, tapping you on the shoulder, knocking on your door going, we're, we're giving away our best stuff here. What are you doing? Like what kind of strategy, or is that more of an internal battle? Like, do, do you get your team? Do, do you exhaust your leadership team going, oh, now I got to recruit for kids men again. And now I got to recruit for <laughs> worship leaders, you know, which apparently is now trademarked. But anyway, um, <laughs> never mind. I don't really saw that article. That's right. I owe somebody money. Um, so, like, do, does your team get exhausted by it sometimes? Yeah, and and just to be transparent, because I don't want to create any you know unrealistic expectations. Anybody listening, I mean, there are healthy ways to do it, and there are unhealthy ways. The same way, if somebody comes to you and says, "I really want to give to the gospel," I'm giving away my entire paycheck, 
You know, right. you're like, well, you need to make sure you feed your family. So uh-huh. we've had to, you know, learn to create certain guidelines. Um, when we have a planter that leaves our staff, which we have usually two to three a year that will go out or, um, yeah, one to two a year for that off of our staff, a major staff member that will leave. You know, we try to say there are healthy ways and unhealthy ways to do this, some of which are not sustainable. Um, give you a real practical example. Um, our church has been historically, a, you know, very um, a white church uh, over the last several years. By God's grace, we've really grown in ethnic diversity. And part of that has been the uh, the cultivation of certain leaders of color who are just, I mean, they are killing it on our, our staff. Well, when somebody leaves to plant a church, they think, well, I want to plant a multi-ethnic church. So I'm going to take that guy or that girl. And certainly they're free to go if, they, if that's what God's calling them to do. But it's it's a little bit too low-hanging fruit to say, hey, you know, that's something that that is being cultivated. So you need to begin to form relationships like that on your own. That would be an example. A, a second example is we, um, you know, we say that like a campus pastor, because that for us is, they are the first line of pastoral ministry. Right. And we, if we know somebody is thinking about going out and planting, we just say, that's not the role for you. It, it's better for you to be an associate at the campus because it's just too chaotic for our church to say, okay, here's my pastor. And then every three years I've got to switch to, a new one. Um, so there's some best practices and I just want to be clear because I don't want somebody to think that we just, you know, empty out our executive team every, you know, every two to three years. Um, but, you know, having said that, it does get, we just had a conversation today about uh, um, a couple of of staff members because our, our church planning pastor just really challenged me. He said, I feel like it's time. And I was like, not them, not them. We got to, <laughs> we got to hang on to them. And he said, no, I think it's time. And he was he was right. Um, and so, yeah, that was hard. It's going to be hard for all, all the people that uh, I had to send them. I have to, what, what's even worse is I'm the one that sends them the letter that just says, um, I'm not only am I blessing you in this quest, I'm actually, I'm actually encouraging you to consider whether God might be calling you to this because we see in you the qualities that could make for a successful planner. And that's hard for me and it's hard for the staff, you know, around them, but we know, um, as long as we, as long as the Holy Spirit is at work and we're keeping the vision in front over time, after the band-aid's been ripped off, you kind of say, yeah, look at what I was just in a church this past weekend that took, um, a few of our most beloved people and man, they're just, I mean, they're reaching so many people now in this, um, this city that I stood up there and I'm like, okay, this is definitely worth it. I miss that guy. I miss serving with him, but this, you know, and what's heaven going to be like when we see the fruit of all that? So let's, before we move on, I want to talk a little more about multiplication because we talked about this a little bit with Todd uh, last time, but you know, there's addition, subtraction, stagnation, I guess, and then multiplication. So I want you to think through, and I think Stark's observations that you talk about, that the only explanation to go from 7,500 to half the Roman Empire in two centuries was basically the path of multiplication. Mm-hmm. But multiplication seems to create, it feels like subtraction when you're the sending church, right? But it's not. Mm-hmm. There is a regenerative. It's not like your your original campus is down to the last 18 people. You've, you've been very, very strong in that respect. Your campuses are staffed. Everything seems to grow. There seems to be compounding, multiplying impact there. Can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit more for people who would be suspect or afraid or worried if they embrace that, how multiplication seems to really increase everything? Yeah. 
Well, you know, Peter Drucker, the the leadership yeah. guy, the guru, used to always say culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's one of his most famous statements. And, you know, it's a mistake to say, okay, I'm just going to take this strategy and lay it on top of a church and think that it's going to work and be healthy for the church. That, you know, what what we are, are seeing now is honestly the result of a decade or so of of, of building that culture to now that's flowering in some of these things. Um, I think that culture, once it begins to pervade from top to bottom, people begin to see that, yes, it's movement and it's it provides excitement and it's something that I really want to be a part of. I um, just a few weeks ago had, um, had lunch with one of our uh, campus elders that um, has been, lead, he's not on staff, but he's campus elder. He's been leading a small group um, for 11 years. He said, I've been leading the small group for 11 years. And I said, oh, that's amazing. He's, um, he, said, he said, you know, we have uh, 10 people in it right now. Um, he said, over the 11 years, we've had 150 people in that small group. And I, I kind of looked at him, you know, sideways. And he said, he said, yeah, he said, my wife and I keep very detailed records of all the people in the small group. He said, of the 150 that have been in our small group, 10 are in now. He said, one of that 150 just stopped coming to small group, stopped coming to church. He said, the other 139, have been sent out from our small group either to be a part of a church plant or to plant another small group. And his kind of like excitement over being able to see and be a part of that is, you know, I hate to use the term lowest level, but at the lowest level of a, of a small group, when you're seeing that kind of excitement that comes out of multiplication, that creates a culture that makes it a lot easier for um, for a church to do that. Uh, we do fight, you know, as a big mega church, we fight the country club thing and people, mm-hmm. I fight it, you know, just what's it like to be comfortable, but um, nothing, you know, when the spirit of God is moving among a people, nothing brings joy quite as much as seeing and hearing reports of people coming to Christ and seeing the gospel go forward. So um, if it's left up to my leadership and I hope this doesn't sound like false humility, I, I will, the direction of my heart will take it toward country club. But, you know, as God is gracious to us and keeping the Great Commission in front of us and as the church believes that and we hold each other accountable, it's, I, I think it's sustainable and I hope it's something we can do till um, I'm either dead or retired. So you wear a few hats and for a few years you were president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, oh yeah, that hat. Easy years, easy years. I think <laughs> you didn't have a lot of challenges during your presidency. No, that's right. Yeah, um, th- those three years were the longest 30 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go there. Let's talk about some of the challenges of leading Southern Baptists through this uh, unbelievably difficult season. And you can take that wherever you'd like, J.D. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the things that really defined the presidency um, was you know, our response to sexual abuse stuff that was happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was uh, really by God's grace. Um, when I became president, I was aware that there was some things that were just some things we were hearing that were just not, that were, that were concerning. And so I launched this task force. So about six months after that, that this kind of article comes out in the Houston Chronicle that just, you know, details, Hey, there's some things that are not being reported properly. Now, I mean, let me be clear. Um, the vast majority of 46,000 Southern Baptist churches, when I say the vast majority, I mean the vast majority um, are, I mean, they're just faithful pastors and leaders that love their people and are mortified at the thought of something like this happening. And they're not trying to protect people in power, but there was enough there that, you know, it just, it was, it was heartbreaking you know, to hear some of these stories. And, um, you know, certainly that's not the kind of thing you're ever 
you know, you check off and keep, you know, and move on from. But um, I think there's been a, a national conversation, even larger than the SBC, that's been really, really good to say um, there's a tendency for people in power to protect other people in power. Yep. And of all people, Kerry, we should have known that, you know, I mean, because Jesus says into the flock, wolves are going to come and the wolves are going to try to devour the flock. And we should have known that we needed better um, safeguards to make sure that those wolves would not be protected or sheltered or be able to hide. Um, so that was one thing. Um, I feel like that's a hard thing just to say and then, and then say, and number two, um, but um, uh, you know, a second thing was there's, you know, we've been, let, let me, tumult- before you go to number two go though, how, because I'm sure there, and again, say to the extent that you're comfortable, there must have been, if there was a, and I think back to one of my, I don't want to name names, but one of my earliest experiences when I was a seminary student was a pastor who ended up in an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone he was counseling. And I watched this happen when I'm like in my 20s. And I remember the action my denominational leader took was, okay, we won't really deal with this. We'll just remove this pastor and put him somewhere on one of the coasts where hopefully he gets the writing on the wall and starts over again. And I remember being incensed by that. And, you know, young, not even ordained guy goes up and challenges the regional governing guy who made the decision. And I'm like, how could you possibly do that? And he just said, well, one day you'll understand. I still don't understand. I don't get it. It's wrong. Did you get, like, there must have been pressure to keep it covered up or there must have been pressure pressure to protect the people involved. How did you how did you counter that or deal with that? Or did people kind of realize, no, this is a different age and we gotta we gotta take no, no, it's still, responsibility. It's still and you know, just to be transparent, some of these questions they get a little complex, you know, because yeah. it, it's cloaked in in things that feel like Christian virtues sometimes. Let me, let me explain right. what I mean. We have to protect the church. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. We 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 um we know that um, there are people who would like to discredit and smear the church, and that certainly is a lot of motive. And you don't want to yeah. play into their hands. And are they the ones setting the agenda? Then you've got this um, concept of grace, and we all when we love grace, and God can forgive and restore, and we will, we love to see people restored. And so you think, well, you know, so and so did this, but. Yeah, they, they, they seem to me to be pretty sorry. Let's put them back in leadership as a celebration of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And listen, I, I believe in God's grace and I believe in his power, but there are certain sins that once you commit them, if you use your power as a pastor to sin, then yes, you can be forgiven, but you, you know, because of what it does to the victims, the people you sin against, you can never again be in a position mm-hmm. of power like that. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, and so people, they, they didn't understand that. They thought they were actually highlighting grace when they were, were perpetuating people that were able to abuse, uh, the concept of the benefit of the doubt. I mean, that's something we, we cherish as Christians. You know, I, I, I want to, you know, carry for you. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. If somebody mm-hmm. says something about you, I want to say, well, you know, I know Carrie. I just don't, I, I'm going to give him, I'm going to wait till that's proven. That's mm-hmm. a, a good concept, but the flip side of that is, well, what about the person who is making the accusation? They they kind of need the benefit of the doubt too. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, how do how do I take an accusation against somebody that I like, and and want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but also give this in many cases a a, a woman who is coming forward 
very broken and say, how do I, how do I honor her with the same, if not more, you know, honor that I'm trying to give to my, you know, other person in, in, in leadership. I, there was a guy who spoke, um, I'm going to say it was prophetic. Um, you are talking to a Southern Baptist, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful um, with that. Yeah. I'm still going to, I'm still going to say it's prophetic. He just, <laughs> at the beginning of this process, he said, you're going to make mistakes. He said, but err on the side of the victim, not the institution. And, mm. and I think that was prophetic because I don't mm. think we ever want, we don't want to make any mistakes. And yeah. we certainly don't say, you know, people are guilty before, you know, proven guilty. Um, but I just, you, you want to say, we want to, we want to be a safe place and we want to recognize that, yeah, this statistically this is happening and, and this needs to be a place that people can come as a refuge. That's part of what it means to represent the gospel. Thank you. No, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing on that. So, I mean, this isn't an exhaustive treatment of that, but there was that issue when yeah, you were president. Right. You were moving on to number two. What what were some of the other challenges that you were dealing with? Well, um, you know that we went through obviously the COVID stuff, George mm-hmm. Floyd. Um, that was a really, and I've heard you talk about it on your podcast wonderfully with several guests. But that was a very challenging time for everybody. And what became apparent, just first of all, in my own church, was that a lot of the unity that we had experienced, it was not really battle tested. It's kind of like, you know, a ship, you don't really know how strong it is until it goes through a hurricane. Uh-huh. And there were a lot of things that we assumed we were together on that suddenly it just, I mean, that, that year just revealed these cracks and fissures. And um, it was, it was, I mean, like many, like many pastors, I, I was like, am I going to be able to keep this thing together? Um, I lost friends that, I mean, I, you know, walked with them through tragedy and yeah. married their kids, you know, I mean, just, and, and they're leaving because I, I said too much about George Floyd. I didn't say enough about George Floyd. I, you know, we, we, we took off the mask too quickly. We didn't, you know, wear them long enough, whatever it was. And, 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 and it just, it became apparent that, that a lot for a lot of people, their, you know, their first identification was more political than it was in the body of Christ. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not an apolitical guy. I think, you know, we ought to carry our Christian worldview into every discussion, but I know as a church and as the body of Christ, it's like, I've got a unity that supersedes and allows for some disagreement in those things. And it just became apparent that that was not true for a lot of people, that they could not be unified with somebody that did not, you know, think with uniformity on, on a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it was almost ironic because we, Christians rail against cancel culture. It was shocking how many people canceled their church because of <laughs> disagreement over one. And I just was like, I don't understand this. Um, that was true. painful. And and then, so you take that from a local church now and you extrapolate it out to the SBC. And there was, you know, a, as a whole, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of tension and, you know, just trying to say what is, what are, what's the basis of our unity really about? And are we gospel great commission people? Um, the good news is, and, you know, <laughs> I hope you won't hear this as any kind of like positive spin, but I always felt like there were two Southern Baptist conventions. There was the Twitter Southern Baptist convention. <laughs> and then, and then there was the real Southern Baptist convention. Uh-huh. And I would, you know, be on social media and I'd be going to some of these, I think some of these more like, you know, rural kind of country type of, you know, we're just talking the the red state, deep red state. Uh, SBC. And I would think, you know, okay, I'm going into there. And based on what I see on social media, I mean, it's going to be, I'm not going to be well-received. 
because, huh. you know, they really want us to be culture warriors based on social media. I would get there and I would find that it was a bunch of pastors who loved me, loved each other. They just want to, they're just trying to reach people for Christ. And they, and it was like this little group was so loud that they dominated the airwaves that it obscured the, the vast majority of people who, who really, you know, weren't, they did, again, they just love Jesus and love people, wanted to complete the right. great commission. It's, it sort of felt like, um, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but it's sort of like, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz scene where, you know, the big old voice and they pull back the curtain and you're like, mm-hmm. wait, it's just that little old man. Like, how was that guy making all that noise? And that's sort of what it felt like. Um, I, I even feel now like when people, and I understand when people, and they kind of see just what certain leaders and people say, then I'll identify with the SBC. I'm, I'm like, look, I recognize that at least for me, when I got elected as president, I felt like it was the vast majority of the people in the pews and pastors, these, you know, 46,000 pastors that wanted, that wanted our convention to be about the gospel. They wanted it to be about the great commission and not about, you know, ethnic uniformity or, or political, political, political lockstep. And, um, and I, I kept thinking like there was several times Carrie, where I just, you're almost like, it's not worth the fight. I just want to, you know, fine, you can have it. I don't need to win this. I'll just go back to my, my church. And I kept thinking, no, no, these people are depending on me to stand up to this group because they're like, we need you to stand here and fight in this and not let those people have this convention because, because they don't want their convention to be about that. And sometimes I feel like it's easy for a leader to you know, get tired of the fight and withdraw, but they're not thinking about the sheep that they're leaving behind who are, they're just basically abandoning to the wolves. Cause when the wolf is attacking the shepherd and the shepherd says, fine, that's not worth it. And he leaves, then you just leave the flock to the, to the wolves. And so several times I felt and still feel now it's like, there are a lot of faithful believers in churches that are depending on the right leaders, maintaining the conversation and taking it where it needs to go so that so that it's not um, it's not commandeered by people that want to take it a different direction. I mean, famous statement by Edmund Burke: "All that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing." And I'm not trying to say I'm one of the good guys per se. It's just just to say that I think leaders have to you have to be willing to to engage in these for the sake of for the sake of the Great Commission. Because leadership is hard, and it's just always going to draw people out who want to take things the other way and. Um, I mean, if you got into it because you love accolades and smooth sailing and peace, then um, I don't know what you were thinking you were going to leave, but it wasn't people. <laughs> uh, your comment about the two SBCs, the Twitter and the real, uh, is actually borne out in the research. So I think he's at mm. Duke. I could be wrong. So not that far from you. But Chris Bale, I had him on, I think maybe last year. We'll link to it in the show notes. His book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, uh, makes a very similar claim that something like a single digit, 13% of the tweets dri- or, or users drive 90% of the extremity, the extremity online, you know, extreme views, extreme opinions. And I can see how that would happen even in a denomination where the loudest voices may get control, but they're not necessarily representative. And his argument is most people are in the middle. Most people right. aren't strongly opined one way or the other. They're just sort of, yeah, you know, I'm moderately right wing or moderately left wing, or I'm in the middle, 
but it's the extremes that have hijacked the polarized public discourse that we have. So that, yeah. that seems to be consistent with what you saw in your tour of the SBC during your presidency. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just add to that, like that extreme group wants that tone to be over the whole conversation. And if you're not willing to adopt that tone, then somehow that means that you're, you know, you're unfaithful. And I, I just, I always wanted to say, look, um, like when it comes to, I mean, let me just make sure I'm, I'm really clear about this. When it comes to unpopular controversial things that the Bible teaches, um, you know, I mean, my commitment to the sanctity of life, the, the sanctity of marriage, you know, that God's design for gender and man and woman and, and even, you know, core doctrines like, you know, the exclusivity of Christ and the inerrancy of the Bible. I mean, those are things that, yes, we, I want to be really, really clear on. And if we can't stand together in unity on that, then, you know, then we might need to go our separate ways. Um, but when it comes to, you know, things like the best way to fix our education system or, you know, um, the proper policing techniques or, uh, you know, any number of the healthcare, global warming. It's like, yes, I actually, <laughs> I actually have very strong opinions on all those subjects we just named. Um, but, and I think I'm right. If I didn't think uh -huh. I was right, I wouldn't hold those opinions, but I, I don't believe those ought to define the church. And I, I just recently, in fact, we were talking right before the, um, we, we started recording. I was thinking about a, a person who just came to faith in Christ here, who described herself as part of the secular left you know, writer for the New York Times and uh -huh. professor at one of our local universities. And I know that if we became identified with a secondary set of political or cultural things, if we become identified by that, then she's never stepping foot in our church. And when I see her and I see how she's come to Christ and how she's growing, um, and we have hard conversations. We talk about hard truths, but I'm like that, she's worth it. She's mm. worth it to to say, I'm going to keep the gospel and the central doctrines of Christianity. I'm going to keep those, I'm going to keep those central, keep those, you know, essential. And I'm going to keep secondary things where they belong, which is in secondary conversations. Important and needs to be talked about, but not as part of the identification of the church or, or, or the gospel itself. Yeah. And that's sort of where you're going with your new book, right? Essential Christianity. You're like, there's a few things we really need to talk about. Then the rest is sort of secondary. Uh, for the average pastor trying to moderate that conversation in his or her church, how do you help them? Because you're always going to have people emailing you, texting you, tapping you on the shoulder going, yeah, but this is essential. Like, unless you, what is your opinion on? And they'll start giving you a really hard time. Um, how do you encourage them to, how would you encourage them to tell people, yeah, but this isn't essential? Like, is there a yeah. filter you use? How, how do you navigate that in your own church? Yeah, I mean, you know, so historically, uh, you can kind of look through the history of the church and just see that there are, are certain things that um, comprise historic Christian doctrine. There are certain things that are contemporary discussions. There are certain things that that are now controversial that didn't used to be controversial. Um mm -hmm. You know, it's it's there. There are new questions that sometimes need very definitive answers to them. We see that in Acts 15, and they you know, came together to try to answer some key questions. Uh, you know, one of the um, uh, I did part of my PhD on the history of of doctrine and uh, its development in the church. And part of um, what you you see is that these creeds are written always in context of whatever is controversial at the time. Mm 
So in our day, questions of gender and marriage, and yeah, maybe that wasn't in the Apostles' Creed, but that doesn't mean that it's not essential because it's, it it wasn't controversial in 300 AD, but it, you know, it is controversial now. And so we have to be clear on that. So I, I don't mean just trying to dumb it down to, you know, five statements that everybody can nod their head yeah. on. But I do think that as you get into, um, you know, just, and you saturate yourself in the New Testament, you find that there are, are things that are, are first tier. Then there are things that you just say, man, I, I really, for the sake of the unity of, of, of Christ, I think we can allow disagreement on that, even though your position on that drives me crazy. And I think it's, mm. you know, I think it's wrong. I always love Paul in Romans 14, you know, when he presents the whole meat-eating question, you know, like. Right. Which was a big deal back then. Which was a huge deal. Because, I mean, it's like, you know, are you are you worshiping an idol because you purchased this stuff that had been. And Paul actually pretty clearly reveals his hand in that. He's on team meat-eater, you know. Yeah. Because he calls them weak. He says, you know, there are people, people who disagree with me are weak. <laughs> is Essentially, you know, when you read between the lines there. But Paul is like, I'd rather just not press this, though, for the sake of of the unity that we need to have around more important things. It's, it's almost like a gospel instinct. And I think that, you know, again, I'm not trying to play prophet or judge here. I think when you peel back some of the layers behind our disunity, it's not that we're, we're, we're too passionate about the things that we're disunifying over. It's that we're not passionate enough about the gospel and the unity of, of Christ's body. Um, there are reasons why I'm like, I'm so grieved by that. We have to separate ways, but, but, you know, Jesus prayed in John 17 for this unified church that would present his gospel to the world. And I love that. I love seeing people like my friend that has told you about come to Christ. And I love seeing people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds have this common salvation. And I'm not willing to put truth on the, you know, the chopping block for that, but that 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 desire for that thing puts the other stuff into the right categories, and I just wonder when I see some of this, I'm like, I, it's not that you care too much about that. I don't think you care enough about the gospel or about or about the flourishing of Christ's body. I, I know that's judgmental and prophetic, so I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but I think it's it's I think it's I think it's a factor. So the SBC is not the only denomination that's struggling. I mean, you've got we're the only ones going to heaven though. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's right. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that publicly. Uh, there's a bunch of them. And yeah. what do you see as some of the keys? And I think you've hinted at it already. So if it's just you want to underline that, we can move on. But like, what are some keys into the future? Because denominations have really, and, and SBC, I mean, Southern Baptists are about as decentralized as you can get right? Like yeah. <laughs> congregational churches, there's not this massive hierarchy or that kind of thing. It's pretty decentralized, but some of the, some of the denominations are quite centralized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, any cues for denominations on how to move forward in a world that is so fractionalized where everyone has access to everyone else's information? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, the game has changed a lot and what yep. we needed denominations for 20 years ago. We don't need it or certainly not a hundred years ago. And we need some new wineskins, um, yeah. you know, certainly to, to think about the right cooperation. What I would encourage people to think about is the value of network and cooperation in the body of Christ, especially for mega churches. You tend to think oh, I can just go it alone and it ends up, you ends up becoming siloed. That's where heresies grow, you know, because you're, you're, you're not having the right conversations with other leaders and, 
And it really, especially when it comes to overseas stuff, you're not nearly as effective as right as just being part of a larger body. Um, Tim Keller, you know, who yeah. um, is, uh, you know, the, the Yoda of our, of our generation. Um, I, I think it's in center church, but he says that um, in Christian history, there are movements and there are institutions. And he says they both need each other. Hmm. He said, he said, because an institution without movement is dead. You know, it's just empty. It's empty religiosity. He said, but a movement without institution lacks staying power. And we see this, you know, you and I have both been in ministry long enough to see that you'll, somebody will come along and they're the, the latest, you know, their, their message is really resonating and they held a couple of big conferences and everybody's talking about them and they're trending on Twitter. But then without the institution behind it, it just tends to, it's like launching a stick of dynamite in the air. It goes off, everybody hears it, but, you know, 30 seconds later, there's no evidence anything happened. And, and so with, you know, for, for in particular, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, you've got some, whether it's mission boards or educational um, facilities, at the lowest point in the SBC's history that I remember personally in my lifetime, um, when I felt like nothing was like nothing was happening, Southern Baptist seminaries were still putting out into ministry. It was like four to five thousand um, you know, graduates a year who were who were going into full-time ministry positions. Um, that is staying power. And that meant that when things were at their nadir as a convention, it was still. And so I, I don't mind giving time to serve. I'm not wed to the institution. It's a tool I'm ready to walk away from if, you know, if it's no longer profitable. But, but I, I think sometimes we can, we can be short-sighted and not seeing that there really is a value in being a part of a network that builds something that, that has that, that staying power. Rodney Stark, we already talked about yeah. him. I'll quote him one more time. He said, the single greatest predictor of the future of any movement or denomination is how many young men and women they're raising up for ministry. Mm-hmm. And so at our lowest point in the SBC, we still had a really good engine for that. And ultimately that's kind of what, you know, I think has, has, has led to a resurgence and then, I know that's a little iffy as to, there's a lot of things right now going on. So I wouldn't say this is an amazing time for Southern Baptist, but I, I think ultimately, you know, it, it's something I'm, I'm happy to be a part of. Yeah. You did mention social media and I was going to ask the question in a different context in terms of the local church, but I think social media really has changed the game for how we talk to each other as leaders and as people on the same journey, on the same mission. Any thoughts on, how we can better handle social media, whether that's at the macro level, leader to leader or congregation to leader, because that seems to be where a lot of the bullets get fired these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think in general, um, those are not great contexts for emotional relationships. I can't remember the, you yeah. probably know it off the top of your head, but you know, the, um, they say that whenever you're um, in an emotionally charged discussion, it's only like 7% of communication is verbal. And then uh-huh. 55% is body language. And the other, whatever Delta that is, is like facial expression, tone of voice. Yeah. And y- y- you're, you're deprived of all of that, except for that 7%, you know, and, and it's just, you know, it's not a good form for engagement. Um, I know that I, I just, if it feels good for me to tweet it or post it, it probably is not right. <laughs> it, it needs different context. It needs fuller. Yeah. We have a saying for our, yeah. you know, our preaching here. We just say no, no drive-bys in sermons. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that is I'm not going to take a, a shot at anything if I don't have 
or anything controversial, but I don't have time to really flesh it out. So, you know, take gay marriage. I'm not just going to put that in a list of, of sins that I just, you know, throw out, move on. I need time to give that context. And so I think on social media, you're like, I'm just not going to do any drive-bys. That's not the forum that's made for that. I do think social media and the online stuff, I think it's really, I mean, it's given us, and I love how you talk about this a lot, Carrie. It's given us like the printing press, a whole new lease on sharing the gospel. Um, being a guy who's very committed to the in-person local church, I'll still say that, you know, one of the things that shifted for us in COVID that needed to is we used to be a church that kind of had online options. Now, even though we we really, you know, the local church is a in-person experience, we also recognize that for most people, their primary way of connection, engagement, you know, maintaining their membership is digital first. You know, it's like, that's the primary, that's the substance of how they connect to our church. And the in-person experience is, it, it kind of flows out of that. I'm not rewriting theology there as much as I am mm. just saying, practically, we've had to, 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 to center some of those ways of engagement and communication, because that's just how people, they operate now. And if we don't, if we don't change to that, then we're just, you know, we're, we're just losing audience with them. It's not serving anybody. In your new book, Essential Christianity, you don't spend a lot of time on it, but you do touch on um, on deconstruction. And I'd love to talk about that. So we talked about a lot of the challenges that the church is facing these days. How does what we're currently seeing in the church tie into deconstruction in your view? So deconstruction raises some very important and necessary questions that quite honestly need to be asked. I mean, how much you know, the, the idea is how much are, are your beliefs and your institutions and your power structures, how, how much have they been set up by the powerful to perpetuate the power of the powerful? Now, certainly that conversation can go too far too quickly, but I, I think there are certain people that are asking, um, you know, where has the historic institutional, um, you know, churches in the United States, where have they not only failed to speak prophetically, and be more gospel centered than they were culture shaped. It also, um, you know, it's where have they actually, uh, you know, perpetuated that and, and embodied that. And those are, I, there's a lot of people and every pastor deals with them and, and can think of faces when I say this of people who, you know, just have been hurt by the church and have a completely wrong view of who Jesus is and what Christianity is about because of of experiences they've had with Christians. Um, that part of deconstruction, those are really healthy, are really healthy conversations. But, you know, it's kind of like C.S. Lewis said, and I actually quote this in the book, where he, in The Abolition of Man, he said, you know, the purpose of seeing through something is to see what's behind it. It's not just to go on seeing through things forever. And sometimes with deconstruction, it's just this endless kind of, I'm always questioning everything and there's just really no way for me to know anything and everything's a power grab and, uh, you know, critical race theory and all the critical theories are just wrapped up in this, this huge discussion. And I think what I wanted to do with essential Christianity was say, okay, even though I don't spend a long time on deconstruction, when you see through some of these things, what you, you see is that the apostles were not, you know, giving first an institution, nor were they giving, you know, first this, you know, really um, detailed way to live, those things would grow out of this essential message that answered 
um, mankind's deepest questions that are true in the first century and the 21st century. Um, well, I'd preached the book of Romans for a year. It's where this book came from. And I just, what I did is I just, I pulled out 10 questions that Paul answers in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then I looked at them and I was like, those are the exact same questions that Chapel Hill, uh, UNC Chapel Hill students are asking. Um, how do I know huh. there's a God? If there is a God, why doesn't everybody believe in him? That's That's a question nobody, like, like, it seems like if there were a God, it would just be more obvious. Why do so many people have different opinions? Paul deals with that. Aren't all religions basically the same? He, you know, deals with that in, 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 in Romans 3 and 4. Then if Christianity is true, then why is it so hard for me? Seems like if it were true, it would just come a lot more naturally. And uh, what about the Christian view of sexuality and, and these things? And so when I, when, I, when I saw those questions as what Paul wanted to say, this essential gospel truth is the answer to these questions. I thought, well, I mean, maybe that would be something that would be helpful for our our students here and our young professionals sharing Christ with somebody else. Um, years ago, I've read this thing Martin Luther said, where he said, never aspire to teach the church at large, just teach your church. And if the church <laughs> at large feels like you got something to say to it, it'll come to you. So I wrote this book for our church as a tool and the good book company said, Hey, I think this actually could, could be helpful for others. So that's the, that's the book story. Now, and when you're talking about that, it's like, I'm sure 90% of people tend to agree, like completely agree with those are really good questions to answer. And I think if we can just answer those questions, we're all going to be further ahead. I want mm. to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap up. One is, mm. what are the critics of the church right about in your view? Mm. Uh, they are right that a lot of times we've served the interest of power before we've served the gospel. Um, you know, yeah. the, they wouldn't phrase it that way, right. but they, they have seen that a lot of our institutions were designed to preserve the status quo. And um, I think we have to acknowledge that, that we are, are mm. people that's, um, like you and I talked about earlier, we have a lot of the same idolatry problems and the same flesh problems that everybody else does. What I think they're wrong about is it, did you ask me what, what they're wrong about or just what yeah, they're right what, about? No, what do, what do you think, um, Chris, uh, critics are right about? And then the next question was going to be, what are they wrong about? Okay. Yeah. So what they're wrong about is that a lot of times it's easy for them to attribute our fleshly errors and our historic mistakes to what we believe versus the fact that we all share the same sinful flesh that corrupts basically everything, including the institutions that we lead. That's especially a tragedy in the church, but it's true. I mean, to, to circle back real quick to abuse, that's one of the really difficult things that you have to show people about abuse is that we, for a long time, you know, evangelical Protestants said, well, that's a Catholic issue. And that's because they don't you let priests get married and that abuse stuff is only them. And, and listen, I, I think ideas have consequences. I'm not a fan of celibacy and ministry as a forced thing. Uh -huh. So yes, I, you know, but ideas have consequences. But the issue is any human being in a place of power unchecked is going to find ways to manipulate and, and abuse. And it's just, it's, it's just, and when somebody looks at Christians and they say, well, because you believe you know, in, um, in complementarianism, you believe in, you know, leadership that, you know, in the home and in the church and, and you recognize this distinction of roles that, um, that that leads to abuse. You say, well, what's going to happen is you're going to excuse, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, that's going to make you blind to where it can happen right there where you are. And I think right. a lot of critics don't realize that what our message has been and shame on us because we should have said this a lot more clearly. 
our message has been that there really is, is, is hope only in Christ. And if there's been a redemptive thing at work in our churches, it's that the gospel, the gospel over time eventually will win out even against our historical, even against our, our errors and our mistakes, mm. you know, whether it's abuse or in the SBC in particular, you know, just some of their horrendous views on race. Yeah. Um, you know, what you see is that eventually the, the gospel, the truth of the gospel won out over that. And what yeah. we want to say, what the critics are wrong about is, is the gospel is the hope of this. The gospel actually, all the things that bother you about our inconsistencies they're actually they're actually addressed in the gospel, and our hope is the gospel, and your hope can be in the gospel too, because that's really the hope that that that's there for all of us. Hmm. Anything else you want to share? Uh, anything else on your mind? Um, well, I'm excited about all these um, things I'm hearing. Just you know, little spots of awakening here. Um, yeah. hey, you want to go back and read the stories of the awakenings in our country? They always came on a really really dark. You know, time and in some ways, Carrie, I feel like this is a, a dark time because of what's happening politically and all the scandal stories in the church. Um, uh, Andy Irwin, who's the producer of the Jesus Revolution movie that okay. came out, um, he, he, he's a friend and he, he was um, just in, in that movie. He was saying, you know, that the, the, the hopelessness that most of us, I wasn't even around for it you, you know, before I was born, but the hopelessness that the Christian community felt in the late 1960s because of the cultural revolution. He said it, I've heard, he said that it felt as dark as it feels right now. And that's when the Jesus wow. revolution happened. And I'm just like, man, God send it again. Is this, yeah. is this the time that we're ready for an awakening? If so, I want to be like the, you know, I'm putting my sail up. I'm ready for the, I'm ready for the gale force wind. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm ready for that moment. I'll tell you that. JD, the book is called Essential Christianity. It's available anywhere you can get books, but where can people track with you these days online? Yeah. Um, JD Greer, G-R-E-E-A-R. It's the strangest spelling in the world I know, but jdgreer.com um, is the easiest place to do it. And um, I'll try not to angry tweet so you can follow me at, yeah, at JD Greer on Twitter. <laughs> That's great, JD. Thanks so much for your time today. And thanks so much for sharing what you shared. Thanks for having me, Karen. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. And uh, if you want more, and there's a lot more, just go to the show notes. It's kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 569. We've got transcripts there for you as well. Uh, you know, the other thing I love about transcripts for podcasts, they're searchable. So if you're like, what was that point on? You just search a keyword, boom, you got it. And a couple of things to tell you about before we go. First of all, I have got some help for you. Do you know that about 22% of pastors say that they really feel supported in leadership and I would like to get in your corner. I've got a training program called the Art of Team Leadership that's helped thousands of church leaders figure out how to create a thriving team culture and end bad meetings with that person you don't like meeting with, uh, get rid of toxic people who are ruining your culture and stop losing your best leaders. If you're interested in any of that, go to theartofteamleadership.com, discover how you can get access to my training program for only $17. And make sure you check out Glue's free texting service. Kingdom-minded donors have made this free for churches across the U.S. Go to get.glue.us slash texting to sign up today. Next episode, man, I'm so excited to have Vance Rausch back on. He's a young entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, also a church leader. And here's an excerpt. 
And so actually playing not to lose in a Silicon Valley mindset doesn't do anything. It actually Mm. is better if you fail fast so that you could learn or even honestly shut that thing down and start again rather than just sitting in this kind of mediocre line. We're going to talk all about the entrepreneurial journey, and we're going to talk about what's changing in finance, how to raise more money, and why millennials may actually be the most generous generation you've ever encountered. I know, that's a surprise. Also coming up, Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller, Seth Godin, Dr. Henry Cloud is back. We got Kenny Jang coming up on the podcast, Paula Ferris, Kyle Eidelman, Kevin Kelly, John Acuff, Uh, Judah and Chelsea Smith and Sharon McMahon. Very excited for all of this coming up on the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. You will get every episode automatically. And one question for you before we go. Would you like to get a free newsletter every Friday that I send out to over 85,000 leaders containing some of the most curious, interesting, and helpful content on faith, culture, the future church, and other things that really catch my eye. For example, I recently shared a Tim Keller article I think is absolutely fascinating on the disappearance of the front porch and what it's doing to churched and unchurched people. Also shared uh, a theory that Ernest Hemingway had about what you should share when you speak or write publicly and a whole lot more. Anyway, these are curious things I've found and we are getting a great response to the On The Rise newsletter. You can get it for free. You can start anytime. You can stop anytime. All you need to do is go to ontherisenewsletter.com to sign up for free. The content is exclusive to newsletter subscribers. It's published nowhere else. You're only going to find it if you subscribe. And you can do that at ontherisenewsletter.com today. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Hope you're having a fantastic spring. I am. I am really enjoying getting back out on my bike again. It's been a minute. And uh, wherever you are, hey, I'm in your corner. Thank you so much for listening. Share this with a friend. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.